to John chapter 4. John chapter 4. And our text for this morning is going to be verses um, 43 through 54. John chapter 4. Remember, John chapter 4 starts out with Jesus leaving Judea, going into Samaria. His interaction with the Samaritan woman, um, her conversion, and then she goes out and she um, bears witness of what Christ um, has done and who Christ is, and then brings more people to Him Many are converted. It says many believed. He stayed with them for two days. And then we pick up here in verse 43. It says, now after two days, he departed thence and went into Galilee. For Jesus himself testified that a prophet hath no honor in his own country. Then when he was coming to Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things that he did at Jerusalem at the feast for they also went unto the feast. So Jesus came again into Cana of Galilee where He made the water wine. And there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. When he heard that Jesus was come out of Judea into Galilee, he went unto him and besought him that he would come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Then said Jesus unto him, Except ye see signs and wonders, ye will not believe. The nobleman said unto him, Sir, come down ere my child die. Jesus saith unto him, Go thy way, thy son liveth. And the man believed the word that Jesus had spoken unto him, and he went his way. And as he was now going down, his servants met him and told him, saying, Thy son liveth. Then inquired he of them the hour when he began to amend. And they said unto him, Yesterday at the seventh hour the fever left him. So the father knew that it was at the same hour in the which Jesus saith unto him, Thy son liveth, and himself believed, and his whole house. This again, the second miracle that Jesus did when he was come out of Judea into Galilee. And so this uh, chapter closes out with a story, a narrative here. There's uh, in the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, Luke, there are other narratives that are pretty similar to this. You have the, uh, the man whose servant is sick. You have Jairus whose daughter is sick. Um, this, is, uh, this is not that. This is, a, this is a different episode here. This is a different uh, time, different person. And we've been saying as we've gone through John that John writes and puts these, puts these, uh, uh, compiles this book strategically and intentionally um, to do more than just give us a couple of stories about what happened whenever Jesus was uh, walking on the earth, when Jesus' earthly ministry was um, underway. But but John is is building and weaving these themes that we found in John chapter 1 in the introduction. And, and he's illustrating these, these themes as we go through 
especially this first half of his gospel. And so for us to take John chapter 4, 43 through 45 and just look at it solo as a story would be to, I think, really miss the whole intent of what John is doing here. And we get a little bit of a, a clue to that as we see the introduction to this section. Uh, after he departed, I'm sorry, after two days he departed and went into Galilee. Uh, for Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. And then it just stops. There's no explanation as to why. Why does Jesus say this? This idea about a prophet not having honor in his own country. I mean, that's that's uh, something that... Uh, the other gospel writers include, but they include it in, in places that seem to be more of a natural fit than just this. And so what we have here is, is, is really a, a threefold outline is what I'm going to use for this, for this text. Number one, we have a contrast. Jesus is going to set up a contrast. The, the, I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself. The, the title of the message, because I think this is the emphasis of the message, is that Jesus gives us a portrait of true faith. Maybe I should say John gives us a portrait of true faith with this nobleman and the whole interaction with Jesus and his son. And so we begin with a contrast. Then we have a rebuke. And then we have a convert. A contrast, verses 43 through 45. A rebuke, verses 46 through 48. And a convert, verses 49 through 54. So the contrast, verses 43 through 45. Now, after two days, he departed, went to Galilee. Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. Then, when he was come into Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things that he did at Jerusalem at the feast, where they also went unto the feast. And so the story begins by Jesus leaving Samaria, where he was for two days, and going back into Galilee. Now, according to John chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, Galilee was the original destination. Okay, Whenever Jesus was uh, leaving uh, uh, Judea where John was baptizing, he left, verse 3, and he went again unto Galilee. That is, he headed toward Galilee. But then verse 4 tells us, that he must needs go through Samaria. So there was this built-in detour that Jesus um, takes his path through Samaria, which is not a path that most Jews would have taken. Now, we know why he took that detour, but this story is going to play on that. Because this detour that Jesus takes on his way to Galilee, he's going to also use to set up a contrast once he gets into Galilee. And this contrast really is between the Jews and the Samaritans. Whenever Jesus says in verse 44, when he testifies, a prophet hath no honor in his own country, 
Don't miss the fact that Jesus is leaving Samaria. He's been there for two days and we read about what happened. The woman went out who was converted, brings people to him. They listened to him and because of his word, they believed in him. Now, Jesus goes back into Galilee and we're not there just yet. But whenever we get to the rebuke, what Jesus is going to say to the nobleman is, except ye, plural. We're in verse 48, I think, whenever we're... Yep, verse 48 of John chapter 4. Okay, He's speaking to the nobleman, but really he's speaking to the entire crowd. He's using the plural. Except ye, except you all see signs and wonders you will not believe. That's not a compliment. Okay. So this contrast that Jesus is setting up is the Samaritans, those who were not part of his hometown or those who were not part of his own country. We're thinking now about John chapter 1. He came unto his own and his own received him not. They received him and they received him gladly and they received him at his word. They believed on him. John chapter 4, 39 through 42, because of his word, because what he said. And then by contrast, the Galileans, it says right away in verse 45 that they received him. But then John adds this detail. When he came into Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things that he did at Jerusalem at the feast. For they also went unto the feast. Why was it that the Galileans were ready to receive him? Because they had seen all those signs, all those wonders that he had done at the feast. Now, this is not just a sort of an abstract or a little hidden nuance that the New Testament doesn't pick up on and, and go else and, and, and apply um, elsewhere in other places. Whenever we think about this desire for a sign, it's something that the Apostle Paul would pick up and put a humongous stamp right on the Jews for it. You remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22, when he's when he's talking about the fact that we preach Christ, but the Jews require what? A sign. Again, not a compliment. It's not, and, and the fact that the Jews required a sign, the Apostle Paul says that the preaching of the cross is a stumbling block to them. They won't believe unless there's a miraculous sign. They won't, they won't, um, uh, believe unless there's these outward wonders that are being displayed for them. The Jews require a sign, but we preach Christ and Him crucified, Paul says 
in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22. You'll also remember in John chapter 2, this is going back to the, 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 uh, when the Galileans saw Jesus the first time. He did the signs and the wonders. John chapter 2, verse 23 says, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, in the feast day, many believed in his name when they saw the miracles which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself unto them because he knew all men. And he needed not that any should testify of man, for he knew what was in the heart of man. And if you remember, whenever we were in this text, essentially we could summarize it this way. It says many believed in his name when they saw his signs, but he did not believe in their belief. He did not commit himself unto them. The word commit is the same word here. He did not believe in their belief. Why? Because he knew what was in the heart of man. He knew that the faith that they were exercising, the belief that they were exercising was not true faith. It was not in the substance of true faith. It wasn't in Him. They were just amazed by the miraculous works that He had done. Maybe you'll remember whenever we were there, we talked about the fact that they were amazed at Christ the same way you would be amazed at a magician. It's, it's not abnormal for you to see someone do something that defies normality and what we think of even as reality. And to be amazed at that person, to be amazed at at the work that they're doing. Now, you may not come to the conclusion that they're God. You don't have to. You're just amazed at the incredible act or feat or whatever that they've done. And so, if you want to think about this in, in a contrast kind of way or maybe in a modern day kind of way, the people came to Jesus and they believed in Him, but they believed really that He was a little more than a magician. Okay? He could do these great works. John chapter 3, verse 2, Nicodemus comes to Jesus, it says, and he said, we know that you are a teacher that's come from God because no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. Well, what's the what's one of the teachings that we ought to take away from John chapter 3? You don't have to be born again to be blown away by miracles. You don't have to be born again to be captivated by someone who can do a miracle. So what's the contrast? Jesus says, the prophet has no honor in his own country. When, when Jesus rebukes, and we're going to get to the rebuke again here in a minute, it says, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Well, the contrast in this chapter is between those who receive Him solely on the basis of His miracles and those who receive Him on the basis of His Word. That's the contrast. The Samaritans come to Jesus and they say, we believe because we have heard Him ourselves. 
The Galileans come to Jesus and they receive him because they remember seeing the miracles that he wrought before whenever he was at the feast. And so when we're thinking about faith, we're thinking about this whole business of true faith and maybe what our forefathers called saving faith. That doesn't mean it's faith that saves you. It's talking about genuine faith that accompanies salvation as opposed to a shallow faith that gets wrapped up and entertained with things that do not last. What are we fundamentally talking about? Well, we could... We could spend all morning taking this message and applying it to different groups under the banner of Christianity that have taken faith and um, really applied it in some very unbiblical ways and really some destructive ways as far as people are concerned. We'll do some of that this afternoon. But primarily, whenever we're thinking about faith, what does it mean for you to have a genuine faith? What is your faith being placed in? I think Isaiah 46 is as good as any to give us some clarity here. So if you have your Bibles, turn there with me. Isaiah 46. Now we're thinking about a just a fundamental... Fundamental principle. What are we talking about? What are we placing our faith in? In Isaiah 46, verse 11b, verse 11b, where it starts out with, I have spoken it. This is God. This is God talking here. I have spoken it. I will also bring it to pass. I have purposed it. I will also do it. What is, what is faith? What is faith? Well, just by contrast, faith is not believing that God will do what I say. Faith is believing that God is going to be faithful to do what He has purposed and what He has spoken. Okay? Seems very basic, doesn't it? Seems very fundamental, doesn't it? That that root principle, really a deviation from that root principle, is responsible for a lot of confusion and a lot of chaos in the world of Christianity today. God says, I have spoken it, and I will also bring it to pass. What does that mean? That means you cannot exercise biblical faith in something that God has not spoken. You can't do it. We pray that the Lord, just as this... Story plays out. We pray that the Lord will heal. Uh, A lot of prayers went up for little Faye. But we could not by faith say, I know what the outcome is going to be. You want to know why? Because the Lord hasn't told us that. We've prayed for other people and other children and Again, what is, what's, what's faith in a situation like that? 
On the liberal side, you've got the charismatics that say, well, the reason people aren't healed and the reason that they die is because you didn't have enough faith. Well, faith in what? Well, for them, it's faith that God would do what you told them to do if you just believed it enough. This, this simple little narrative at the end of John does away with that. The faith that we're called to exercise and the mark of true faith, saving faith, means that we are seeking to embrace what God has spoken and we're believing that He'll do what He said He would do. That and no more. That and no less. And so we start out here with the contrast between a faith that's built upon signs and wonders and a faith that's built upon the Word of God. What God has actually spoken. No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son has. He comes to us from the bosom of the Father. He has declared Him. Again, John chapter 1, this theme that's going to intersect in this narrative. So a contrast. Secondly, we have a rebuke. We have a rebuke. Starting in verse 46. So Jesus came again into Cana of Galilee, where he made the water wine. And there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. When he heard that Jesus was come out of Judea into Galilee, he went unto him and besought him that he would come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Then said Jesus unto him, except you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. So this section starts with a certain nobleman. Okay, It just means that he was royalty. Somehow this man was connected to Herod Antipas, either a relative or a an official. And he comes from Capernaum, which is about a day's journey from Cana. So he comes from Capernaum, and when he hears that Jesus has come back to Galilee, he goes to him and it says that he was begging him is the word. He was begging Jesus to come and to heal his son who was sick to the point of death. Now you can fill in a little bit of detail by using some sanctified imagination. This man's son had probably been sick for a while if he was to the point of death at this point. Okay. A man who was associated with royalty would have had the money to get the best medical care that was available around Capernaum, which, by the way, wasn't all that much. Um, it's not perfect, but whenever you get into the Bible days, you get a glimpse of what all natural looks like. Okay? Our technologies have grown a little more. But the kind of treatments that they would have given for this child would have been, let's bleed the sickness out. Let's give them some dung with a special seed in it. That'll help. Um, this man spent money on everything he could have found. And what happened? He just continues to get worse. Nothing worked. And the sickness 
begins to decline into what looks like the point of death. And so as this man comes to Jesus, this man comes physically and emotionally exhausted, desperate, and hopeful that this last ditch effort is going to heal his son. Okay, so we're not talking about a man of royalty who comes probably dignified. We're talking about a man who comes desperate. And what we get out of Jesus is kind of an odd response, at least odd to us. He comes and he says, would you heal my son? And Jesus begins with a, re- with a rebuke. Except you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. What's the emphasis here? Well, the emphasis in this verse is the word see. Except you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Why is this rebuke even given? Why does Jesus give it? What's wrong with wanting to see signs and wonders? Why take the opportunity to teach this lesson while the man's son is about to die? Well, Jesus is making clear that whenever it comes to faith in Him, and when it comes to genuine belief, Jesus is God's appointed and anointed Savior. The word Christ, anointed Messiah. He is God's appointed and anointed Savior. Not a genie who came to win crowds by magic and miracles. That's not who Jesus is. Jesus didn't come to wow you with what you could see. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. And He makes, a, he makes a, an, an intentional um, effort here to emphasize that. The passage teaches us something that's very, very important about the true nature of saving faith and what accompanies regeneration. So a few things we see here. Number one, well, this isn't number one. This is, this, is the, this is what covers the one, two, and three that we're going to see. True and saving faith is not preoccupied with seeing signs and wonders. True and saving faith is not preoccupied with seeing signs and wonders. And you may think to yourself, why are you emphasizing that? We've never, we've never emphasized that at our, at our church. We've never preached about signs and wonders and, and uh, these miraculous things of this and that. And, and, and maybe we never have. But again, you realize what the, maybe you realize this, maybe you don't. The fastest growing quote-unquote denomination in, in the Christian world, you know what it is? It's the charismatic movement. A movement that's built on this. That flies under the banner of, of, of Christianity. That, that, that emphasizes this whole business of placing your faith and, and, and authenticating your faith through seeing these signs and wonders. 
couple of things here that we get. Number one, as to why this is unbiblical, and by the way, we can, we can have our same version of this. We, we may never stand up and say, this is what I'm demanding to see out of God if, if, if I'm going to believe or if I'm going to embrace scriptural truth, but we can put God to the test or we can come up with silly things like, Lord, if you will just do this for me, then I will fill in the blank. God doesn't work that way. God may confirm and strengthen your faith, but God is never calling you to root your faith fundamentally in what you see and even what you receive in a physical sense. We'll talk about why that's so. So, number one, signs and wonders will never produce lasting faith. Signs and wonders never will. And we get that from the old and we can see that in the new. Look in Numbers 14. Numbers 14. Numbers 14, verse 11, we get a similar kind of a rebuke here. Numbers 14, 11 says, And the Lord said unto Moses, How long will this people provoke me? And how long will it be ere they believe me? For all the signs which I have showed among them. What's he saying? Well, number one, he's saying, How long will they refuse to believe me? And then number two, he's saying that in light of all the signs that he had showed the people along the way. I mean, we've talked about this before, but you would figure that if you were on the run from an army that was out to destroy you, that you had been enslaved to for 400 years and you came up on a sea and God parted those waters and you walked through on dry land where you didn't as so much get a, a, an ounce of mud on your sandal. And as soon as you got to the other end, you saw the enemy swallowed up as those walls of water came upon them and obliterated them. What in the world could ever shake your faith from that? You know what God says? How is it that my people could go through that and yet they still don't believe me? They get on the other side, and you remember what they say? Almost immediately. He's brought us out here to kill us. Where's the food? Where's the water? I was so much more comfortable back in Egypt. See, the signs and wonders, they were, they, they, they're good for an adrenaline rush, and we don't dismiss the fact that God can do miraculous things in our lives. But our faith must be fundamentally built on what God has said in order for us to in order for us to accurately interpret what God has done and what God is doing again we can personally get off into some weird mystical stuff if we get the cart before the horse here if you don't know what God has said about Himself, you can't determine what God is and is not doing. Secondly, look in Acts chapter 2. 
It's a familiar passage here. Maybe you haven't thought about it in the light that we're looking at it here, but Acts chapter 2. This is as Peter is preaching a sermon. Pentecost. And in Acts 2, verse 22, it says, You men of Israel... Hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs which God did by him in the midst of you as ye yourselves know. Now, Peter's just pointing to this reality that God did all kinds of signs and miracles through Jesus Christ authenticating that God was with this man and, and he didn't do them off in a dark corner somewhere. He did those things in front of you. You know that he did those things because you were there. And what's the response? Verse 23, him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye, you, you all, the same crowd that saw these miracles, the same crowd that saw these wonders, you have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. Again, the the Jews saw Jesus and His signs and His wonders. What did they do? What was their response? Well, they murdered Him. They murdered Him. You remember what happened whenever they realized that He had raised Lazarus from the dead? There was no question that Lazarus was dead. They weren't trying to say, no, he wasn't dead to begin with. They knew that this this man had brought Lazarus from death to life. You remember what happened? They made it their goal to murder Lazarus Lazarus again and to kill Jesus because of it. Signs and wonders, they did nothing. Did nothing. When we think about the request to see these signs and wonders in the Gospels, they're not put in a good line. Again, this idea that sometimes we could try to base our faith of or, or on or, or think that our faith would even be strengthened in a lasting way if we could just see this miraculous thing here or that miraculous thing there. Uh, John chapter 2. Jesus goes into the temple and He cleanses it. And then the Jews come to Jesus and their question in verse 18 is, What sign showest thou unto us, seeing that thou doest these things? How can you authenticate yourself as having authority here? Show us a sign. We could go to several other places. I'm not going to turn here, but in Luke chapter 23, verse 8, it says whenever Pilate sent Jesus to Herod, that Herod was glad to bring Jesus in and to question Jesus and to talk to Jesus because he was hoping to see a miracle. He believed that Christ could perform miracles to try to make a case that Herod was born again. Um, You're going to have to find another Bible. Now here's another principle. and This is an important one. Biblically speaking, walking by faith is at odds 
with walking by sight. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, For we walk by faith and not by sight. Now what's the what's being taught here? Is what's being taught here that you just blindly walk? You just, you just blindly walk and, and uh, you don't really pay attention to what's happening. Um, you are gullibly walking headlong off the plank into the ocean. Those Christians just have this blind faith. That's not what's being taught. Walking by faith and not by sight means that you're walking in light of what God has revealed about Himself in Scripture. Not in light of how you feel about the circumstances in front of you. That's what walking by faith rather than sight means. So that we, we have times in our lives where we are fearful. Where it looks like our circumstances are going to swallow us up and destroy us. But then we remember that Paul one time was cast down, but he wasn't destroyed. We remember that God is a present help in time of need. We remember 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, that, that God will make a way of escape, that we don't have to resort to sinful means and sinful methods. We remember what God has revealed to us in Scripture, and that is what informs the way we respond. Not our fear, not our anger, not our discouragement, not our despair. On the flip side, not our rush of adrenaline, not our excitement, and not the quest for a miraculous thing. You know, um, a, a shot of adrenaline can be just as dangerous as a bout of despair. There's a lot of people that do a lot of stupid things, rash things, when they're worked up into a frenzied excitement. To walk by faith is to walk in a self-controlled way that is directed by the Word of God so that your circumstances aren't throwing you or tossing you about, Ephesians chapter 4, with every little wind of doctrine, but you are firmly rooted in what Scripture has said about who Christ is, about what Christ has done, about what Christ is doing, about what Christ will do. It comes from the Word of God. Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 would also bring out this contrast. Romans chapter 8 verse 24 It says, uh, for we are saved by hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For what a man seeth, why doth he yet hope for? But if we hope for that we see not, then do we with patience wait for it. Now the word hope and faith come from the same root word in, Greek, in the Greek, and they really have synonymous meanings. We can see that really just based off of the biblical definition. When I say the biblical definition, whenever you... You don't have to turn here, but in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, now faith is the substance of things hoped for. Okay, so hope and faith are connected. They're tied together. So Romans 8.24 says that 
We are saved by hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. It's not, it's not, hope is not based on what you see. It's based on what you know. It's based on what you anticipate. It's based upon what you're believing and anticipating. So whenever we're thinking again about the, the nature of true faith, why is it that it can't be wrapped up in these signs and wonders? And it's because faith is really the gift of God that accompanies the invisible reality that will one day be made visible. That is, you have been adopted into the family of God. Your dead soul has been made alive through the quickening of the Holy Spirit. And you have been given faith and hope and that which cannot be seen, but that which is confirmed in your heart through the witness of the Spirit and the Word. First Peter 1, verse 8, speaks about faith and this reality that you, even though you have not yet seen Christ, yet you still love Him. Again, it's at odds with sight. It's at odds with sight. So John 4, the man comes to Jesus and says, my son is sick, even unto death. The rebuke is, except ye see signs and wonders, you will not believe. And then lastly, in this section, we see a convert. That is the nature of true faith. We see this man who's brought to true faith in Christ. At least he exercises true faith in Christ. 40, verse 49, it says, The nobleman saith unto him, this is after Jesus gives the rebuke, the nobleman saith unto him, Sir, come down ere my child die. And Jesus saith unto him, Go thy way, thy son liveth. And the man believed the word that Jesus had spoken unto him, and he went his way. And as he was now going down, his servants met him and told him, saying, Thy son liveth. Then inquired he of them the hour when he began to amend. And they said unto him, Yesterday, at the seventh hour, the fever left him. So the father knew that it was at the same hour in the which Jesus said unto him, Thy son liveth, and himself believed, and his whole house this is again the second miracle that Jesus did when He was come out of Judea in Galilee. The second miracle is referring to the second miracle that He did in Galilee or in Cana. Just as we know this is not the second miracle period. Whenever we back up to verse 49, we see that the nobleman illustrates marks of true faith in this way. Verse 49, he is persistent. He comes to Jesus and he says, will you heal my son? And Jesus rebukes the man. And what's his response? He asks him again, would you heal my son? Would you heal my son? Okay, except, except we see signs and wonders, we will not believe. But I believe you can still heal him thinking about the nature of 
faith as it relates to prayer. You know, we may not have a million little detailed assurances that God will work out every little circumstance the way that we want those things to work out. But you know what we do have the assurance of? We have the assurance that as we come to God through Christ, He hears our prayer every single time. And He answers that prayer according to His will. And so just like the man who was persistent in prayer, the importunate beggar who came to God again and again and again and again, the nature of true faith is that we hold on to Christ and we will not let Him go. We have the same um, the same conviction in our own hearts and minds as Peter did when he said, Lord, where else will we go? You're the one who has the words of life. Where will we go? So this man comes again and says, heal my son because he's sick unto death. Verse 50, Jesus said unto him, go thy way, thy son liveth. And the man believed the word that Jesus had spoken unto him and he went his way. One, we said he was persistent. Number two, he believed what Jesus said, even though he had not yet seen what Jesus was going to do. That he believed what Jesus said. Jesus said, Go thy way, thy son liveth. And what happens? The man believed. The man believed. True faith, genuine faith, rest upon God's word and God's word alone. What do you need more? What could God give you more? Now again, we're not talking about true faith means that the unregenerate man in the flesh musters up some kind of confidence in God's Word and that's what pleases God. We're saying that true faith comes to a man who's been given a new heart, who's been given eyes to see, ears to hear, and when God's Word is given to that man, the Holy Spirit takes that Word and bears witness in that man's soul that this is true. This is reality. And that Word is received. That Word is believed. So he believes what Jesus said. Remember the... Rich man and Lazarus. Lazarus begs that they send the dead back to warn his brothers so that they might turn and repent. Remember what's said? They have Moses. If they won't hear Moses, they wouldn't believe even if somebody came back from the dead. In other words, if they're not willing to embrace, if they haven't been given the faith to embrace the Word, even a zombie couldn't convince them that this reality is true. Not only did he believe what Jesus said, how do you know he believed? Because he obeyed what Jesus said. He says, would you come and would you, would you heal my son? And 
Jesus says, go your way, your son lives. And it says the man believed and did what? He turned around and went home. This is the same man who probably spent a fortune trying to heal his son. The same man who went to Jesus hoping for some kind of an instantaneous result. The same man who, who comes and Jesus rebukes the crowd by saying, you're not going to believe unless you see. He tells the man, your son lives. He believes. He turns around and he heads home. Verse 51 says, and as he was now going down, his servants met him and told him, saying, Thy son liveth. Then inquired he of them the hour when he began to amend. And they said unto him, Yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. And so the father knew that that was the same hour in which Jesus said unto him, Thy son liveth. And himself believed in his whole household. So he was persistent. He believed. He obeyed. For... This accompanies true and genuine faith. The man found Jesus to be faithful to His Word. He found Jesus to be faithful to His Word. He goes, His servants meet Him, He asks, when did this happen? Whenever they tell Him that His son was alive, that he was the fever had broke, that He was healing or was healed. And they said it happened at the exact, I mean, we're, I'm, I'm putting this in as a summary, at the exact same time that Jesus said, your son lives. Same hour. The nature of true faith is not, I see a miracle, and that gives me a little bit of adrenaline until I need another one. And that gives me a little bit of adrenaline until I need another one. It's not, I've received answer to this um, uh deep-rooted desire. And so that gives me confidence that God's going to give me everything else I ever ask for. The nature of faith is that we begin to believe, and this faith starts out small and it grows, that we begin to believe that God will be faithful to every promise, every word He's ever spoken. Man shall not live on bread alone, but on what? Every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. That's the nature of true faith. I believe it. I embrace it. I obey it. I find Him to be true. And my faith is growing here. It's that Romans 5 experience. And then it says, He and His family believed. So we see in the man that is... Earlier belief is confirmed, strengthened. Because his family is brought to faith. And we'll talk more about that this afternoon. And so this story begins with a man who comes and says, my child's dying, would you come and heal him? It ends in a way that he probably did not expect. And no doubt, the nobleman's testimony at the end of this whole scenario would be parallel to Psalm 119, verse 71. It is good for me that I have been afflicted. 
It is good for me that I have been afflicted, that I might learn thy statutes. True faith does not believe that the Lord will deliver us from every earthly affliction. True faith believes that God has a good purpose in every earthly affliction. That the Lord is using and redeeming those afflictions not to destroy our faith, but to actually build our faith so that we learn things in the fire that we would have not learned anywhere else, so that we begin to experience things about God and who He is and the pressures and trenches of life that we would not experience anywhere else. J.C. Ryle puts it this way. He says, health is a great blessing, but sanctified disease is a greater blessing. Prosperity and worldly comfort are what all naturally desire. But losses and crosses are far better for us if they lead us to Christ. You see, that's, that's, that's completely upside down to the way that the prosperity, the health and wealth, and while we might stand from afar and say, I'm glad we're not charismatics, we can let some of this thinking infect our own thought life as well. What is true faith? What is true faith grounded in? What is true faith embracing? Well, fundamentally, true faith is taking God at His Word. Embracing the reality that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. And that He will do all things well. That He's redeeming me. That He's begun a good work that He will complete. And that I can believe that He will be faithful to the end in the midst of afflictions, in the midst of doubts, in the midst of difficult circumstances. So that in the end, we will be brought forth as gold. Why? How? Because He keeps every promise He's ever made. Look in John 20. We'll end here. What's the emphasis again of the message this morning? Well, it's that true faith is not based upon what you see. It doesn't mean that it's blind. It just means that it's not based on some miraculous encounter. It's not based on some miraculous healing or you telling God what to do and God somehow affirming His love to you by obeying what you've said. True faith is believing what God has said even when you don't see it. John chapter 20, verse 29. Jesus here is interacting with Thomas. You remember this. Thomas said he wouldn't believe until he could put his fingers into the prints of the nails and thrust his hand into the side of Jesus. So Jesus tells Thomas to do just that. Thomas says, My Lord and my God. And in verse 29, Jesus saith unto him, Thomas, because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. Blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed.
Blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. May God bless us to take him at his word. May God bless us to take him at his word. And brothers and sisters, again, you can't do that if you're not in his word. If you don't know what his word says. If you're unfamiliar with with the ways of God that he's revealed to us by his son in scripture. So may God bless us to take him at his word. We might treasure his word. So that we might walk in faith. Let's pray. Father, uh, we uh, we confess. uh, Those of us who know you. Those of us who have come to you, Father, we do believe and we pray you would help our unbelief. We also pray that you would bless us to have our heads straight as it relates to the nature of true faith. That we would not be distracted or that we would not be turned aside into chasing miracles and wonders and signs. So many ways we wouldn't think about doing that in silly ways, but there's plenty of things that we desire that we can begin to try to build our faith on, to try to bank our faith on. Plenty of things we'd love to see you do that whenever that doesn't happen can weaken our faith. And so, Father, I pray you would teach us and strengthen us and taking you at your word and at your word alone. Pray that your spirit would apply this to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.